Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 319 with Brad Stotts. Brad has some great perspectives to help reframe a couple things that might be holding you back when it comes to learning and growing and improving all the time. So you'll learn one, the four elements of dynamic learning. Two, how we can often be our own worst enemy when learning. And three, how to reframe how you think about mistakes. So if you'd like to take a look at the show notes or the transcript or links to items that we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F319. And while at awesomeatyourjob.com, I encourage you to check out some of our nifty things. One nifty thing is the 10 Days to Winning at Work email course. So if you'd like to slash an average of 80 plus minutes of waste out of your work week, well, you can do so by getting 10 bite-sized lessons sent right to your email box, one a day for 10 days. Now, here's Brad's story. Bradley R. Stotts is the author of Never Stop Learning, Stay Relevant, Reinvent Yourself, and Thrive, and is an Associate Professor of Operations at the University of North Carolina's Keenan Flagler Business School. His research examines how individuals, teams, and organizations can learn to improve their operational performance to build a competitive advantage, integrating work and operations and management and organizational behavior to clarify how and under what conditions individuals, teams, and organizations can learn at their best. Big thanks to Bradley for sharing his wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Here is Brad. Brad, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Awesome. Thanks so much for uh, having me as well. Excited to be here today. Oh, I am too. I am too. And and I wanted to start by hearing a little bit about learning in a different environment. I understand that you spend a good bit of time coaching baseball teams for your kids and others. So so how's that? And, and what's that teach you about learning? Yeah, it's been a great experience. So I have three sons who are uh, 13, 11, and 9 now. And so uh, a good way to spend time with them is out on uh, on the baseball field. Uh, and I think uh, baseball is a game, and, and probably coaching even more fundamentally, is an action uh, that uh, are both fantastic for learning. I think on uh, you know, the, the biggest thing for me is, uh, is really around the process. Actually, in the book, uh, Open with a Story uh, from one of my son's uh, games, where uh, he uh, was facing a really hard pitcher, did everything right, and uh, was, a, was a few years younger, and unfortunately uh, hit into a double play and came back you know, kind of extraordinarily upset, despite the fact that he'd hit the ball incredibly hard. It all worked out. And yet, you know, he was looking at it as a failure. You know? and, uh, and I see so many things like that on the field of when we focus on the outcome, as an example, uh, instead of what we actually did the process, you know, we fail to learn. And so there are those chances in working with the kids and helping them see kind of what's going on around them uh, that, that then port so nicely over to, to other learning contexts. I think the, the other big thing for me is that, well, I certainly played baseball as a kid, by, by no means an expert, but thankfully surrounded by some head coaches that, that did a lot more than I did. And so it's a great reminder to me of the power of I don't know, of getting asked questions that, you know, I could speculate as a coach, I could give them an answer that they might nod their heads and believe that, but I realize there are other people that are more qualified. Uh, and so it's it's almost freeing that, that I don't feel uh, the need in that context to, to claim this is what you always do, but I don't know, let's go talk to Coach John, let's go talk to you know, Coach Jim, Coach Skyler, um, whomever, uh, and trying to then to port that over to, to organizational contexts. 
Well, yeah, that, that is great. And particularly, you know, I think there could be some, I don't know if it's a, if it's a context thing or an, an expectation thing or a macho thing in terms of, you know, I'm a man and I'm a dad and these are my kids and I have the answers. You know, I, I think that that's sort of an easy uh, rut to fall into for some. I, I think you're absolutely right. And you certainly see it, you know, out, out on the field of people who playing games try to do that. And the ironic thing, of course, is that eventually people catch on, right? So eventually you, right, you undercut your credibility in an attempt to, to stay important. And so, you know, people, people are willing to accept, we don't need to know all the answers, right? It's a hard world. It's uncertain. There's a lot going on. You should know the basics, right? You know, there are four balls, get you a walk, that sort of thing. But if there's some nuance, you don't get the same thing with umpires. So it's a great way to walk out. And, you know, I don't, I don't know this. And then having a really productive discussion around it, learning and moving forward to the next thing. Excellent. Thank you. Well, so then let, let's hear about uh, some of this that you unpack and synthesize in your book, Never Stop Learning. What's it all about? Yeah. So it, it's uh, getting at, in many ways, these sorts of behaviors. It's uh, a recognition that, you know, I think with learning, we know a lot of the things we should do. We know the processes we should follow, that we should fail fast. We should ask questions. We should follow the process, learn from others, et cetera. And yet we don't. And so, you know, it's a question that's really bugged me you know, for a lot of years. Why don't we learn? And, you know, what I've come to appreciate is that learning is a science, but but in a lot of ways, it's a behavioral science that, you know, when it comes to learning, you know, we are, in fact, our own worst enemy. And, you know, that's the challenge. The good news is research from, you know, diverse fields, whether it's operations, psychology, economics, neuroscience, shows that that we can be the problem, but we also can be the solution. So in the book, what I try to do is look at some of those practices that we should be following, explore why we don't, you know, why, why do we have those behavioral issues? And then importantly, how can we overcome it? What can we do in order to, uh, you know, get to a better spot? Well, well, so then let's let's dig into this. You use the term dynamic learner frequently. Uh, first, could you define that for us? And well, we'll start there. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when, when I think about dynamic learning, it's it's in part a recognition that I would argue we live very much in a learning economy now that, you know, I kind of grew up thinking of it as a knowledge economy, an information economy, this recognition of all, all that's out there. And, and I think the shift to, to you know, learning as is, is the motivator um, there is important because recognition you know, it's not what we know right now uh, that'll future success. Um, it's how quickly we change. Uh, and so dynamic learning is getting to that. It's, a, it's an appreciation that we need to be really four things with our learning. We need to be focused. We need to be able to pick the right topics, um, right, you know, as best we can define it, you know, at the moment. We need to be fast. Uh, our acceleration matters. How quickly can we get up to speed on those chosen areas? Uh, we need to be frequent that, you know, it really is an ongoing process. Not learn a little bit, stop. Uh, it's kind of a truth today uh, of lifelong learning, but but nevertheless, it, it is a truth. It's fact, I would argue. And then finally, we have to be flexible that just because we picked an idea, we accelerated, we've learned it, you know, it doesn't mean that's where we stay. We have to be able to adjust off of that. As I think about dynamic learning, it's capturing those four elements of how do we be focused, how do we be fast, how do we be frequent, and how do we be flexible? Okay, lovely. Well, well so then I, I want to dig into that. I'd like to get your sense for a dynamic learner. Sounds like a great thing to be. Yep. 
uh, desirable. If you had to to guesstimate, or maybe you have some hard studies here, uh, what proportion of people would you say qualify as dynamic learners? Yeah, it's it's a great question, and and I don't uh, I don't have you know hard numbers around that. You know, I, I think you know I, I would probably twist the question around a little bit and highlight what I think the literature shows us is that effectively none of us are are dynamic learners all of the time, but but basically all of us have the potential to do it. That. Um, it's part of the premise of the book, and, and certainly it's somewhat introspective for myself uh, with the book. Of you know, as a quote unquote learning expert, um, I still feel and, and see myself fall short on these dimensions. I've yet to kind of see someone who always does these things right. At the same time, uh, research is is really compelling in that. You, know, you can teach an old dog new tricks. Uh, the dog just has to want to learn. Uh, and so I think that's kind of the encouraging message uh, of broader research and certainly the book as well. Okay. Well, so then along those lines, I, you've said elsewhere, I saw it on your Twitter, and that, yeah. that most of us are, are actually pretty bad at, at learning. You know, can you, can you unpack that a little bit and, and share sort of what's the, the, the big evidence that points to that assertion? Yeah, no. So, I mean, I, I think it, it gets back to this behavioral challenge that, you know, so often we, you know, feel the need to, uh, to go down a certain path when, when it's actually fairly problematic. And so, uh, you know, lots of examples, you know, jump to mind. I think, you know, the sports world often provides easy one that folks would know. So you can think about something like if you follow the NBA, Sam Hinkie from the Philadelphia 76ers and the idea of trust the process. Um, has been pounded, you know, over again and again with this idea that, you know, it's hard to win in the NBA. So you take an approach, you make measured bets, you play the probabilities, and uh, in the long run, it'll work out. As a part of that, it was a bunch of losing up front in order to get high draft picks and trade away talent to, you know, assemble future resources. And you know, if you look from 2013, when he was hired to 2018 this year, they Sixers made a playoff run. Uh, they're kind of rated number four, I think, by ESPN on their power rankings looking to the future. But a couple of years ago, he was effectively pushed out of the organization. While he took uh, this you know, process focus, thinking about you know, we're getting to that uh, you know, future outcomes, at the end of the day, ownership uh, you know, added enough was enough. Uh, and uh, you know, got rid of him more or less. Even though, thankfully, the model he put in place has largely been followed with a few missteps and played out, you know, directionally the way he'd expect. Uh, and so, I think we see that sort of thing. There's another research study looking at uh, on the process point right there at NBA coaches, and looked at at uh, a couple thousand NBA games over multiple years. You can think about when you play a game, the final score gives you some information about uh, how the team did, but uh, and that, you know, if you win a game by one point, lose a game by one point, it doesn't really provide dramatically different information, right? It's, it was an incredibly close game either way. The study shows, you know, that if we look at changing the starting lineup, uh, so kind of this belief that something's wrong, you know, you're much more likely to change it if you lose by a lot than if you win by a lot. Big shock there. But if you get down to that plus or minus one point difference, the coaches that lost by one point were far more likely to, to change their starting lineup than the ones that won by a point. Back to this challenge of we obsess about the outcome. The coaches were likely to do that even when you know they were expected to lose. The, the results carry through even when they just unlucky. 
Another team shot, you know, remarkably high free throw percentage that day. But on average, this plays out, you know, kind of across the entire NBA. And so in study after study, you know, we can pick a given practice and see a whole lot of the time kind of we we play it out the wrong way. And so if we're going to do better, yes, we need to know the practice, but we also have to have some idea of kind of what goes wrong. Well, well that's really intriguing. And I'm wondering if that is purely self-imposed, you know, like the head coaches have the autonomy and flexibility and authority to, to say, I have considered all of the, the parameters and yep. our goals, and this is what I truly believe is the answer to make this happen versus do you think that it's a more a matter of sort of outside influences saying you got to change things up, you know, <laughs> and, and that they're, they're kind of reacting to external pressures. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's some of both. I think um, you're right that, you know, the outside both pressure and impression management, right. That, you know, we just feel like, well, we need to be seen doing something. There's kind of a related study that I love looking at uh, soccer goalies and uh, looks at soccer goalies on penalty kicks. Uh, and so I'll get the numbers slightly wrong, but basically about in this study, these were professional goalies, like 94% of the time, the goalies dove to the left or the right, right? Player gets ready to kick it. They make their decision. They they dive one way and then right, most of the time don't stop it, but occasionally do. The, the data suggested that uh, if they were to stay in the middle, it would dramatically increase their likelihood of stopping the ball. But about 30% of the time, the offensive player just kicks it back right up the middle. And yet, uh, the goalies you know, tended to dive, right, 94% of the time. Uh, and so the researchers went back and they asked the goalies, you know, kind of, hey, here's this information, you know, why don't you stay in the middle? And, and their response was basically along the lines of, well, I'd really regret it if I stayed in the middle and a goal was scored. But if I dive the wrong way, you know, I have a face full of dirt. I can feel like I have done everything. And so I think there are times that even when it's counterproductive, right, we want to be seen doing something um, just so we can feel good about it, even if it turns out with, you know, stepping back and looking at the big picture, it was the wrong thing. That is interesting. And the same thing with the fans too, you know, <laughs> like yep. if, if you stay in the middle and then a goal is scored, it's like, that lazy goalkeeper, what is he doing? <laughs> what the hell? Why didn't he try something, right? <laughs> I could stand in the middle I mean, yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah, that really, whew, that's worth chewing on for a little while in terms of, hmm, you know, my own life, business, work. What are those instances uh, in which we're, you know, metaphorically diving instead of staying in the middle when, when that's appropriate? So I, I imagine you already have some ideas. So I'll let you unpack a few of them. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, I, I think a lot of it is sometimes slowing down to go fast that uh, you know, we can look at some of the different things, take you know, just the last one of you know, not diving. Um, are we actually taking some time to think? Are we taking time to, to reflect? Uh, that if we look at research on learning, it turns out kind of we activate different parts of the brain when we learn by doing, you know, kind of engaging in an activity versus learn by thinking about it. Um, so as you would expect, then, if we do the two of those um, together, we're likely to learn more than any one. Uh, but we're so on, we're so feeling a need to do things uh, that, that we don't, in many cases, think enough about it. We've done some research. We did a big uh, field experiment with a technology company on their services organization. So they were training workers, six-week training program. At the end of it, they took an exam to join uh, you know, kind of the firm fully, get off of 
provisional status and go start to serve customers. In the middle two weeks of that program, uh, we did a 15-minute intervention every day of just at the end, write about two things you've learned, right? Scribble down kind of two things you've learned that day. And then we had a control group, so we randomly assigned participants to one versus the other. What we found the end of that six weeks, uh, that the group that reflected scored about 25% higher uh, on that test that you know, qualified them for the job. Uh, that their first month on the job, they performed about 10% higher in their customer satisfaction scores. We've done a bunch of lab studies to follow up. Others have done work around this. But actually blocking some time out for thinking, simple as that sounds, you know, somebody at the end of the day today, take 10 minutes, think about what you've learned that day, think about how you're going to take it to deploy tomorrow, getting in a regular habit of that, uh, of slowing down just a little bit, can be incredibly powerful. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's 10 minutes. I mean, what a return on investment there. That's huge. And and somebody says, write about what you've learned. Is, is that sort of the entirety of the prompt? Or, or do you have some sort of juicy follow-ups to help spark and provoke the good stuff to come forward? Yeah. So I think keeping it simple is a great place to start. And so in that, in that experiment, it was just right about two things you'd learned. I think if we if we look, we can see some ways, as you're pointing out, to dig a little bit deeper. One of those ways that uh, that's important is thinking about when we've failed, thinking about when we've tried something that didn't work, uh, thinking about how we need to push ourselves, right? Taking more risk. And it really, that prompt can do two things. One is it can open us up to the possibility of you know where we've already gone wrong, but we've sort of pretended it didn't happen. Uh, back to the you know behavior getting in the way. One of those challenges is around failure. That sometimes we try something, it doesn't work, uh, but we just deny the failure. Oh, that's what I wanted all along, or, or no one would have been successful there. And so that prompt to hey, why might you have been responsible? Why you know what do you need to learn out of that? I think the other piece is. Sometimes for fear of failure, we end up holding back, right? We don't actually try enough. And so, you know, if you're forcing yourself to think about kind of when have you tried and not had it work out, and you can't come up with any examples, you know, it's a pretty good indication we, we need to elevate our failure rate you know, a little <laughs> bit. That's not saying, right, take it uh, to an extreme, but, you know, it, for most people, pushing a little bit more on the risk front uh, is likely to be productive. Not everyone, of course. Yeah, right. And I guess it's interesting in terms of like the stakes of the failure, you know, crashing a, a commercial airliner is <laughs> terrible. Yes. Yes. Don't do that. Never uh, aim for a higher failure rate there. No. Yeah. But I guess maybe, you know, speaking up at at a meeting into which you you share an idea that might be dumb or wrong or bad in some way is probably a a prime time to to amp up a little bit of risk and, and see what happens because you might say, wow. Brad, we, we've been we've been waiting for this brilliance from yeah. you. Thank you so much, and it, it's well worth doing with with low downside. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. That um, we need to define kind of the the space that we have to play in, right? So, you know, your comment about you're flying an airplane, you're you know working in the control room of a nuclear reactor. By all means, you know, we're not going to experiment there, uh, but. Most of us in the bulk of our lives um, have plenty of room where you know, we can try some slightly different things. We can you know, speak up to someone. We can introduce ourselves to someone. Uh, we can ask a question as one of the, the key elements that often we think we kind of need to keep our head down. We don't understand something. But it turns out, uh, research tells us that you know, when we ask other people's questions, it's not that they think, you know, we're dumb. You know, I can't believe Brad, you know, had to ask me a question. They actually like it. It shows engagement uh, with them. And it also 
you know, allows us to turn to who we all, you know, think the expert is going to be, which is ourselves. So we engage that other person in the conversation. And sometimes the questions just make you seem way smarter in terms of, wow, that's really insightful. Or it's like, I've never actually articulated my thinking on, on this matter. Now that you ask it, I probably really should have a while ago, you know, <laughs> for, you know, for you and everybody else who's doing this task many times over. So thank you. I'll write that up, you know, or, or, or here, here is the, the response. And, and yes, I think I would love it if, if folks that I'm thinking about sort of in management contexts, if, if people would ask me uh, more often, you know, it, it really isn't a hassle. <laughs> no, it's it, it's no, kind no. of it's kind of fun, and and it brings about good things. So so that that's that's a great uh, tidbit in terms of in that moment when you're sort of worried. Oh, I wonder about this, but I don't want to look dumb D- to go there. Absolutely, and and I mean, I throw out one of the most powerful questions that I stumbled into, uh, kind of early on, you know, by accident, and now as I watch, I see you know, great question askers, uh, we'll, we'll throw it out there, uh, which is, you know, is there anything I have not asked you about that I should have? And, <laughs> you know, what's, what's so powerful about that, you know, frequently of a conversation, right, is we're kind of giving the person free reign of, you know, please teach me, uh, almost based on whatever the conversation has been about. And I've been stunned in all sorts of different contexts, you know, as an academic, uh, before, when I was three as a student, you know, on and on, of what comes out of people's mouth when you kind of take barrier down and it's no longer transactional around these particular items, but let's open it up. Uh, you know, what should I know about this topic that I haven't asked? Keep that one in our back pocket as we, as we interact with others. Oh, that, that's so good. You know, I learned that in consulting and with, with interviews of, of, you know, customers or, or, or clients or employees and or competitors. And, and it really is amazing how often it's, it's toward the end that you get the goods. And, and I have a variation of that, Brad. I won't I won't spoil the fun, but uh, okay. one is coming your way. Okay, nice. Just built the suspense there. <laughs> I like it. Uh, that's good. Now I'm on the edge of my seat. All right. Well, so now, so you laid out sort of a, a pretty comprehensive framework in terms of, of what one should do to become a, a more effective lifelong learner. And we've already, you know, covered some, some good tidbits there. So, so maybe you could walk us through that in a quick overview pace and, and then maybe dig into a little bit yep. more detail for, for some of the parts we haven't gotten to touch upon yet. Yeah, absolutely. So um, as uh, you kindly pointed out, you know, in the, in the book, I lay out kind of eight different elements of, you know, things we should do for learning, but we don't. Uh, and so kind of why is that? And so, uh, you know, we've, we've hit on a number of them, things like valuing failure that, I mean, that's kind of learning one-on-one advice. And yet um, I've really yet to work with a company that, that, you know, when we talk about that kind of, you know, nods to me, oh yeah, we've, we've got that one covered here. You know, no need to, you know, no need to discuss, move along. And so there's some, you know, there's some real challenges there. The second one is around focusing on the process as we kind of were discussing around the baseball, uh, you know, coaching example that, you know, we, we get so obsessed about the outcome that, uh, we don't really dig into, you know, the process and, and keep our attention there. Third is, uh, you know, this point around asking questions, uh, that, uh, we end up being kind of so, um, active, uh, we feel the need to, to check a box, to, to do something when often, you know, that pullback, ask a question and then get going, going slow to go fast is, uh, you know, incredibly valuable. 
you know, the fourth is uh, around the need for reflection and recharging, kind of contemplation, that uh, we live in a world of action. We uh, There's been interesting research highlighting about, uh, you know, kind of in the U.S. at least, doing things that show you're busy, that uh, I show you kind of on a Bluetooth headset suggesting you're rushing around versus a corded phone or that you order groceries online versus at a store that actually you know, give you higher status in uh, some interesting experiments. And well, I didn't know that gave you higher status ordering yeah, groceries. Exactly. I thought that made me lazy that I ordered groceries. It's- well, <laughs> I, I did too, right? Uh, so, you know, interestingly, the, oh, the study looked right. at Italy and you did not get the same status there. Oh, so, I bet. Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, there, there are differences in some of these factors around the world, but, you know, that rushing, uh, that kind of need for activity rather than real progress uh, gets in the way of learning, and so we have to take that time to step back to reflect and think about things. A couple that we haven't talked as much about uh, are around really being ourselves. So kind of you know to a pair of of being yourself as opposed to fitting in and really playing to strengths, not weaknesses. And you know I, I think you know, especially if we look at the latter one, so much of learning is built around um, in our minds what we're doing wrong, right? If we think about kind of standard organizational feedback uh, advice is you give a feedback sandwich, right? You, you know, thin veneer of positives, both to, you know, break the person down as they come in and kind of butter them up, get them ready to go, and then hopefully send them on their way so they don't feel as bad about themselves. But the the bulk in the middle is laying out all the things that we did wrong um, and that need addressing. And, you know, the challenge with that approach is you know, we're not going to be good at everything. Uh, that you know, every minute that we spend on a weakness is one that we're not spending on building out our strengths. And as we work with organizations, as we think about how companies compete, you know, lots of advice is given around you know, play to your strengths, be focused, you know, compete around those dimensions that you can win on. Um, and yet, we often don't do the same thing as individuals. And so, for you know, would suggest for really compelling learning, um, we have to first identify those strengths, which is hard, and then really play to them. Going back and filling in weaknesses as appropriate, uh, where they're a critical weakness that would prevent us from uh, from succeeding at what we're trying to do. And so, that's a bit of a reorientation, I think. You know, while strengths are talked a lot about, kind of on that learning side, appreciating why they're so fundamental. The last two are just around, uh, first, how we build experience, uh, that we often think about it as either, you know, become specialized, become an expert, very deep, or we think about kind of this value of variety as we switch moving across uh, different elements. And while each of those can be powerful tools for learning, they can work against us too. And so uh, what it suggests, uh, you know, we find is that you really, uh, we learn our best uh, when we are both, you know, specialized and varied. So kind of a T-shape in our portfolio of experiences, getting deep in something, uh, but making sure we have enough breadth that uh, we we don't end up missing the point, right? That, that we're so narrow in our approach that we have that problem of, right, we're the, the expert who's got a hammer and so everything uh, looks like a nail and uh, we're not able to deal with you know, more complex problems. The last one is appreciating that while individual learning, there are lots of things about us that matter and we need to dig into those, as I've been saying that it's not just an individual exercise, that others are incredibly important. And some of that is, you know, the value that of the knowledge they bring and uh, what uh, 
we can learn from them. Uh, but also, and you hit on this earlier, the value for us of teaching others, right? When we get that question that, that makes us, you know, explain something, that makes us codify it, the real value that arises there. Uh, and so we've done some research in a couple of different contexts, um, looking at the power of learning from teaching, uh, that, uh, you know, when you teach someone else, Hopefully you help them, but you actually help yourself, um, interestingly enough. And so uh, really kind of seriously thinking about how others can help you in addition to how you can help them. Well, that's a nice lineup. Thank you. And yeah, we could dig into a lot of things there. And I guess I want to get your take on, okay, valuing failure is something that you say just about no organization says, got it. Yep. Covered. So I'd love to hear from you in terms of what are some of the best practices or or what does it really look like in practice when a a team or an organization truly does value failure? Because in some ways, it's just so hard to imagine. What was that famous example? Is it, maybe it was IBM. I'm I'm so, I don't have the details, but someone made a a huge investment in like a technology or, or a business plan course of action that absolutely did not work and and it may have cost a, a huge sum like like a billion dollars and and so the executive is ready to tender his resignation but and the ceo famously said i refuse to accept this we just invested a billion dollars in your education and uh, we we're not about to let go of you and so so that's a nice little reframe like oh how how kind and and how sensible to think about it in that way but so in in sort of smaller stakes uh, situations how does that unfold in real life yeah so you know, I, I've always heard that story told around, I think it's Thomas Watson Jr., uh, but it's one of the Thomas Watsons in IBM and the threat of, of getting fired for that. But I think you know what's important and the organizations that seem to have some more success with this is kind of twofold. There's one defining, you know, where is it a safe space to play? Right. So we're back to avoiding that, you know, airplane problem or nuclear reactor problem, but also being open about it. So Ed Catmull, the co-founder of Pixar, talks about this uh, in uh, in his book about, you know, we have to reframe how we think about mistakes, um, that mistakes, you know, aren't uh, expected. Mistakes aren't, you know, something rare. Mistakes are just a part of a process and, you know, that we have to you sort of grow comfortable with them. There's a, a fast food company that I find really interesting called Pals Sudden Service. Uh, and Pals is in kind of the Southeast, primarily Tennessee. And the first restaurant to win the Malcolm Baldridge Quality Award, bunch of interesting kind of elements of, of the company. But the CEO likes to tell people, he's very much out in front saying, look, as long as it's not illegal, immoral, or unethical, you're allowed to make any mistake once. But you need to make sure your next mistake is a new one. And so I think in my mind, that's you know, just so extraordinarily powerful that you know he is out there sharing you know what's happening, how he's trying things. It's not you know, hey, be careless, you know, do whatever the hell you want, but rather be comfortable that if you're taking the right actions, where right actions is about the process, right? Not about getting everything correct. That you know, I'm okay with that, and I know in the long run the organization is going to be much better off for that as a result. That's great, thank you. Well, Brad, tell me, is there anything else you really think is important to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? No, I mean, I, I think we've dug into the elements. I mean, obviously, you know, these are things that, that, that I think we're both pretty excited about. And so, you know, I, I can spend lots of time um, talking about each one. I mean, I, I think that the 
probably if, if I were encouraging folks, uh, you know, what, what would you do right now? You know, part of it would be, you know, take that time to think about wherever you are, what you've learned. Uh, I'm sure there are a lot of folks, uh, that, uh, that listen to, to your podcast, you know, as they're commuting to or from work. And, uh, so we did, uh, an ex- a field experiment around commuters. Uh, we we're interested in a couple things. We we're interested in how to help them learn, but we we're also interested in how to help them enjoy their commute a little bit more. So it turns out uh, you know, kind of our morning commute is, tends to be our least favorite part of the day. And so uh, what we did across a few studies, but the biggest one uh, was we randomized folks into three conditions. We had a control group. Uh, we had a group that was kind of the fun treatment and uh, then a group that was uh, the reflection and uh, we tracked them for a while. We sent them texts to take some surveys from them. Uh, but in the middle, over over a stretch of time, we texted the fun group and just said, "Hey, engage in some fun right now, please." We texted that reflection group and we asked them, "You know, think about your day. Uh, think about you know what you have to do today, uh, and uh, and how you can you know tackle those tasks." And again, we followed them over an extended period of time. And what we found is those folks that we nudged to think about their day, um, to think about learning, that, you know, interestingly, they were happier, uh, they were more engaged at work, uh, they reported higher performance, and they reported enjoying their commute more. And so, you know, I think some of these processes are hard to get us going in the right direction sometimes. But as we can build out those habits, we really can help ourselves um, in uh, in some neat ways. That is intriguing. So so this the, the text nudge occurred during the commute time. It did. Yep. Um, so they shared with us kind of when uh, when they were commuting, and so then we would text them at uh, at the start of the commuter or early on in their commute. So you were engaged in texting while driving. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, we 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 were using a third party provider, and uh, <laughs> yes, this was much more about public transportation. To be clear, not uh, not hopefully catching people behind the wheel of a car and uh, and running into trouble that way. Okay. Very good. Uh, well, just had to give you a hard time there. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, well, that's intriguing. And, and again, with reflection, were there any particular prompts? It was about think about your day and uh, what you have going on. So, I, I mean, I think what's interesting, you know, is there's no you know one magic word. Um, it really is forcing the discipline on yourself to take a few minutes and to focus. Right, that our minds you know can easily wander to other things. Uh, so, see what happens if you if you spend even five minutes. Um, you know, whether it's in the morning. Okay, what am I going to do today? How will today you know be a great learning day? Or at the end of the day, what did I learn? What did I try? You know, that didn't work that I can learn from that sort of thing. Oh, excellent. Thank you. Well, to, to do a little bit of reflection and to, and to go meta here right now. So the, the question I, I asked you earlier, that was a, a variant of the, what's something I should have asked, but didn't ask was, is there anything else you think is important to mention before we shift gears and hear about your favorite thing? So I would value your feedback on that question that I, I sort of have routinely in the in the interviews prior to shifting gears to the to the next segment, and say, are there are there pros and cons to asking it uh, the way I asked versus the is are are there any things that I should have asked but didn't ask? No, I mean I I think I I like that question a lot. I I, I mean as a general rule with questions, and you know this is, is a great interviewer. Uh, less is more, right? That. Uh, once we get into the, the follow-up after the follow-up, there comes a point where you need to you know, narrow someone in. Uh, but on that one, you know, keeping it 
like you did, as simple uh, and open as possible. Hey, what else uh, is uh, is almost the best way? But I, I like it a lot. Yeah, that, that's so true when it comes. And, and I, I think I'm learning that myself. It, t- it takes about 300 episodes to <laughs> get. <laughs> yeah, Le- so, learning curves matter, right? We see it in all contexts. <laughs> is that I, I am because because sometimes and maybe it's just like the, the fear of dead air or, or whatever. Uh, even though we could edit it, <laughs> yep. yeah, but it, it, it's sort of like, hmm, I need to be speaking, although I'm not yet done formulating what my question is. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, it's funny. You know, I, I hate to give away one of one of my favorite jokes, which isn't necessarily all that funny, but it but it works exceptionally well when I teach. That I'll have dead time in class early on uh, in a day, perhaps, and. Yeah, I've grown more comfortable because I've come to appreciate, like you were saying, sometimes we're formulating whether it's me asking a question them. Uh, and so I'll typically, you know, when that happens, I'm looking at them uh, and I'll tell them, hey, look, you need to know at my core, I am an operations professor. And so, you know, staring awkwardly at people in silence describes every cocktail party I've ever been to. So I'm, I'm quite comfortable here. Take your time thinking. And it breaks the ice and, you know, lets people appreciate, hey, I don't have to always be talking, right? Talking and saying nothing isn't actually helping the conversation here. Uh, but let's pause, think about what's going on, and then, uh, you know, get moving to the next thing. That reminds me, one of my, my favorite work moments, it was so short, but I remember I was working on a consulting engagement and then, and then uh, someone said something. I don't remember what they said. And then, and then the manager said, "Hmm." And then there was just like silence for about <laughs> about ten seconds. And then, <laughs> and, and so then they, they prompted her like, uh, "Steph, uh, you." <laughs> and she's like, "I'm thinking." And I, I thought it was awesome <laughs> because nice. it, it just it just created permission for everybody to to slow yeah. down and think. And and it made me think that she was more brilliant, you know, as a leader, you know, than than less brilliant. So absolutely. Yeah, right. I mean, that's the Franklin quote, right? Isn't it Franklin about, uh, you know, better to stay silent uh, rather than reveal our ignorance, basically. But, uh, you know, staying silent gives us a chance to think and then, you know, often avoid ignorance in the first place. Lovely. Well, now, could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? You know, one that jumped out at me you know, from a young age and, and has stuck with me, and it's actually the quote I use um, in the conclusion. It's a long one, but it's from Merlin. Uh, in uh, The Once and Future King. Uh, and it's basically him kind of reflecting on the power of, of learning. So, you know, I apologize for the length, but, it, but I think it's, it's worth it. Um, he says that the best thing for being sad is to learn something. That's the only thing that never fails. You may grow old and trembling in your anatomies. You may lie awake at night listening to the disorder of your veins. You may see the world around you devastated by evil lunatics or know your honor trampled in the sewers of baser minds. There's only one thing for it then to learn. Learn why the world wags and what wags it. That is the only thing which the mind can never exhaust, never alienate, never be tortured by, never fear or distrust, and never dream of regretting. Learning is the thing for you. All right. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. And we, we talked about a couple um, studies and, and experiments, but any other pieces of research that uh, are among your faves? Yeah. So one, you know, I, I think it was the one that was probably uh, you know, the most pleasantly surprising to me that it worked, frankly. And, and I joke about this with uh, Francesco Gino uh, at Harvard and Dan Cable, uh, who's at London Business School now, although all three of us were at, at University of North Carolina at the time. 
I had been spending the day in India, where, where I do a fair bit of research, uh, with uh, a uh, chief quality officer, uh, a gentleman by the name of Devinder Malhotra. And at the end of the day, we'd been talking about learning and this and that. You know, I asked him the same question, did he have any questions for me? And he said, well, Brad, you know, do you know what could reduce our attrition, reduce our turnover? And kind of went on a little bit about how it was interested in keeping people around, helping them learn more. Um, and at the time, a bunch of my work had been kind of learning by doing, experiential learning. And so um, it was clear that that, that wasn't going to move the needle enough. And so kind of gave a, well, hold on, let me think about it. We'll go back. Uh, you know, spent that 20-hour flight back, you know, reflecting. Dan and Fran and I kind of came together to brainstorm. And this is what really led to the work for us around uh, the power of the individual uh, because we came back to them with, you know, with an idea where we said, hey, let's, let's come up with something that we don't think they'll do, that we think would be really impactful, but is a big enough change that, that they'll tell us no and see what happens. And we said, what we want to do is, is have y'all give us an hour on day one for an employee. Oh, uh, yeah. And uh, We had then, Dane Cable. Keep going. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and uh, with that hour, we're going to change the onboarding process. And so uh, we had kind of three approaches here. We had a control group, uh, we had an organizational intervention and an individual one. And so, you know, with the individual one, um, we did things like think about when you've been at your best, you know, hear from a uh, employee, star employee about how they could be them, their best self at work, and then introduce yourself to everyone around, you know, this highlight reel that you've created for yourself. For the organizational group, it was how great this employer is, which, you know, it was highly ranked in India, great stats. Uh, employee coming in, talking about how great the organization was, introducing yourself around kind of why you were excited to be here. And then we gave the individual folks a fleece uh, sweatshirt with their name on it and the organizational folks a fleece sweatshirt with the company name. And so basically the idea of prompting the individual versus prompting the organization. And so what was so cool about that one, uh, we then uh, tracked them for six months. Dan was back in town. Uh, Fran hadn't moved yet. So the three of us kind of gathered in my office. And, you know, often we run these studies that take a long time to analyze, you know, and so it's kind of um, anticlimactic at the end by the time you, you finally you know, work your way through it. Uh, but this one was pretty straightforward. Uh, so we collected the data, uh, you know, kind of we gathered around my desk and, and there was finally that moment of hitting, you know, the enter button uh, and seeing what popped up on the computer. And we did that and the numbers popped up. And it was one of those that all three of us were just in stunned silence uh, because we saw folks who were in that individual condition were dramatically less likely to leave the firm, about 25% less. Uh, they had learned more. Uh, they were about 10% higher in terms of their customer satisfaction scores uh, early on in the job. And it was you know, literally that, that hour of the first day is all we changed uh, and gave them that, uh, that fleece with their name on it. And then everything else was the same. But I think you know, what was so exciting to all three of us was, you know, unlocking the individual is such an incredible opportunity. Um, and it really becomes a win-win both for, for the employee, uh, but also for the organization as, as each can get more out of it. Yeah. I, I love that story. And that, that is how an award-winning academic paper is made. So, so kudos again for that. Oh, yeah. it's, it's, it's one of my favorites. So cool. And how about a favorite book? Oh, that's a good question. The let's see what uh, you know. As, as I was quoting from it earlier, 
you know, I really enjoy Ed Catmull's book. I think he does a great job in Creativity Inc. as he tells, you know, his um, experiences of, uh, you know, kind of moving through computer graphics and eventually Pixar um, and hitting on a lot of these themes of learning um, in an innovative environment, you know, bringing up this role of failure, mistakes, um, talking about the importance of data. How do you have discussions with people um, and kind of data is a great equalizer uh, as, you know, something that's neutral that then we can can really have a discussion around, in my mind, kind of translating to the process. Uh, and so that's one that I certainly really enjoy. And how about a favorite habit, something that helps you be awesome at your job? I think for me, it's there's probably two I would highlight. I mean, one is the reflection point of trying to do it. I do it a little bit more at the end of the day than at the beginning, uh, but carving out just a few minutes at the beginning to think about what's going on. Often it's on the on the move, uh, so it's not you know kind of sitting there with a tome, but rather you know five minutes of okay, what's happening today? What's my priority? How do I get this done? At the end of the day, what did I learn? Um, ideally, that's around the dinner table with family uh, as we go around with our kids uh, and we all talk about what made us happy today, what made us sad, what did we learn, what did we fail at, those sorts of things. Um, you know, incredibly powerful. Uh, the other one that. You know, I've, I've certainly known the research for a long time. I've done a lousy job of practicing it. And I think, unfortunately, um, certainly in, in the U.S., we, we often do a lousy job of practicing it, is taking a real vacation. That uh, that ability to disconnect and do, you know, whatever it is individually you need to recharge, um, it likely looks different at various stages of life. You know, what recharging meant uh, pre-kids was far more active than uh, than post-kids, but uh, uh, has has been you know, over the last few years, as my wife and I have done a better job of incorporating that in life, uh, has definitely made a big difference. And is there a particular nugget that you share in, in your work in, with, with teams and folks that really seems to connect and resonate and gets them sort of quoting yourself back to you? Yeah, I mean, the, the one that I probably get quoted the most back is, is something that, that Dave Upton told me. Uh, Dave uh, was a great mentor. And, uh, you know, one day, you know, I was going to meet with him. We had 30 minutes. Time was tight. I probably had an hour and a half of, uh, of material that I wanted to cover with him. Uh, you know, as uh, an operations scholar, I could do the math there. And clearly the way to solve that problem was just to talk three times as fast. Uh, and so uh, you know, I was trying to fly through things, uh, doing pretty well about 10 minutes in uh, before Dave uh, put his hand on my shoulder uh, as I was taking a rare breath, uh, looked me in the eye and said, Brad, don't avoid thinking by being busy. And I think that kind of advice has really stuck with me uh, that, you know, it's easy for us to avoid hard problems. It's easy for us to avoid some of that discipline by being busy, but, uh, but it's certainly not productive in the long run. It's good stuff. Brad, tell me if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Yeah. So uh, my email, excuse me, my website is uh, www.bradleystats.com uh, uh, or just check out uh, Never Stop Learning. Uh, hit me up as well on LinkedIn or, or whatever would love to uh, to engage with folks. All right. And do you have a final challenge or call to action you'd issue to folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's to to take, you know, this mantra of never stop learning seriously, right? I mean, we've, we've known uh, that it's out there. We appreciate at a high level that we need to do it. But asking yourself, you know, what's, what's getting in the way of me, uh, you know, learning on a daily basis? Uh, and uh, I would suggest odds are, you know, it's us, right? The enemy is us. Uh, and so, you know, how can we pick one thing, you know, out of the eight I discussed, or, you know, if something else resonates more strongly with you, how do you pick that one thing to start working on today?
Well, Brad, thank you for this. This has been so fun and interesting. I wish you and Never Stop Learning and, and your work uh, all the success and luck in the world. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate uh, you making the time for me. And uh, uh, thanks again. I love how Brad reframed questions. They don't make you look dumb or insubordinate or any of those things. But no, they endear people to you. They, they like being asked those questions. It can make you seem all the more insightful, intelligent, like you're engaged, you're paying attention, you're listening, and you want to know more. So have no fear when there are questions to be asked. Go ahead and ask them. You can reap some of those benefits. And again, if you want to check out the show notes or transcript or links to items we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F319. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push the subscribe button. You'll hear from our next guest. It's Ann Sugar and has lots and lots of experience, executive coaching, some impressive big shots at cool places. And she unpacks a little bit for how one develops executive presence and gravitas. Hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.